welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. We've enjoyed nearly 150 valuable interviews with many more to come. And I've condensed the best insights from these interviews into a short guide, the top 10 insights and tools from the first 100 plus interviews. You'll find this guide as valuable as your favorite interviews. At least I hope you do. That was my intention. And it's easy to get. Just go to theeverydayinnovator.com and you can download it at the top of the page. Hope you check it out. I love it when listeners suggest topics to explore on this podcast. Thanks so much for those of you that have emailed me and made, made suggestions, including this one, Win Loss Analysis. Now, this traditionally is considered a sales tool to understand why a customer chose or rejected a product. However, savvy product management groups recognize it as vital analysis for improving products and the customer experience. To explore the topic, I talked with Mike Smart, who teaches organizations to conduct win-loss analysis from a product management perspective and also manages the entire analysis for organizations as an independent third party. He is a product management practitioner and founder of Egress Solutions, which helps companies implement product management best practices and build and launch successful products. You'll find a summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 148. And I want you to know I write those summaries to pull out the key points of each discussion. So when you're listening, if you hear something that you want to go back to when you start thinking about applying the concept, just head over to the summary first. It's there to help you out. And again, that's at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 148. Enjoy the interview. Mike, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thank you for having me, Chad. Appreciate it. For listeners, we just had a great talk. One of the fun things about doing this podcast is I get to meet incredible people who have good insights into product management and innovation. And that's one of my, my motivations, right, for personally doing it is these great discussions. And Mike, so glad you can join us to talk about a topic that we haven't explored yet. It has been a topic listeners have asked for. This will bring some new value to listeners as we talk our way through win-loss analysis. So thanks for being here. No, it's, I'm looking forward to it. It's a topic, I think, that's often misunderstood. And for product managers, I think it's sometimes hard to get their arms around it because it's such a broad area. Yeah, and, and the topic has come up sometimes with companies, too, who I get involved with training their product managers as an activity that their product managers aren't doing today and that they see some benefit in you know, adding this as a responsibility. So let, let's start there. What, what are the benefits for conducting a, a win-loss analysis? One of the things that you, if you go out and you view the entire win-loss analysis, Google listing, you'll find a number of companies that are available that have been doing this for a long time. And the most prominent thing you'll notice is that the emphasis of doing win-loss is on effectively trying to figure out the sales process. So if you kind of look at the sort of pitch, if you will, or the the value proposition of some of the companies that exist, it is focused on sales process, and it's focused on gaining buyer insight, it's focused on understanding the buyer preference. Mm -hmm. Those are excellent, phenomenal things to do in a win-loss process. Um, I think there's additional benefit depending upon how you structure it. In fact, we've created a service offering that 
rotates, if you will, or pivots away from the emphasis on trying to dissect the sales process or do a taxonomy on sales to really question. You've got a valuable customer right there and good practice and good mechanisms. And we've figured out several and we're not alone or others doing this as well to get customers in front of us that we can almost ask them anything. And when you do that, the questions you ask become the gems that you have. So we can ask about perception. We can ask about the strength of the value proposition. We can ask about whether or not they perceive an ROI. And so all of those things from a product management perspective give us strength of understanding how effective our messaging is. Mm -hmm. It'll tell us what should be going at the priority, top of the priority list for our product roadmap. And it may tell us some things that we may not even expect, that we may get pleasant surprises or that aha moment that we didn't even understand what customers were viewing as the way they use our product. They may tell us some other capability or some other functionality or some other contribution it makes to their daily lives. Those are really the strength of the benefits. And it really does extend beyond just the sales process. That's, you know, product managers would be involved in this really if that was just the, the extent of it. It can get into the customer experience and what was the whole touch points and what was the perceptions of the product that was shown to them and, and how did it match? How did it align with the, their problem and really meet their needs compared to other options? I have seen probably win analysis done more frequently, right? It's like, hey, we found a new customer. Let's go back. Now that's an opportunity to talk to the customer. And, and maybe maybe one of the uh, the expectations is we can get some marketing language to use in the future, right? As a referral or something here and not getting maybe the deeper insights to help us improve products better. Loss analysis, I, I think, is a goldmine of information because that's when you had someone say no to you. I'm just curious about your experience with that, about how hard is it for a salesperson to go back? Because they're often the ones involved in asking for this, right? Uh, helping out the product managers make this happen. To go back to, to something you lost and ask for a meeting where you can have do this win-loss analysis. It's interesting you say that, Chad, because our practice says that salespeople should not be directly involved in the win-loss win analysis process mm -hmm. at all for the very same reason that you just alluded to. If we have a fairly lengthy sales cycle between two and six months, mm -hmm. the salesperson has developed a rapport. They have developed an impression of the customer and vice versa. It's very difficult for that salesperson to intervene in that change roles. I'm not here to sell you, Mr. Customer. Right. I'm here to understand and dissect the buying process. Yep. Most customers are not going to, customers and or potentials who said no are not going to participate in that. They may not believe that that's the truth, mm -hmm. so therefore they'll shut it down. Or they may believe and trust the salesperson's intention, but how honest are they going to be if they develop rapport with this person to tell them exactly what the buying experience was actually like? Right. And so we suggest very strongly that and why we suggest sales not run the process. They're a recipient of it. They're a consumer of it. They're a vital stakeholder in it. They can provide lots of market intelligence, lots of pre-analysis and understanding about the marketplace to product managers or product marketing managers. But as far as executing that, that activity, they should step back. And so then we suggest that product managers and or the group that runs that either elect to assign a person to do that dedicated to that task inside the organization, or they choose a third party. Mm -hmm. And many, 
will choose a third party simply because there's a lot of heavy lifting. And it becomes easier to then outsource the activity and reap the benefit of the results. Right. And I've seen that quite a bit, the choosing a third party, choosing a service organization like yourselves, right, to help with this win-loss analysis. I think a key reason is not just the heavy lifting, but it's also the perception of bias. And by having a, a independent party talk to the prospect that you won or lost, I think that customer feels more freedom to be honest and just share what their experience was really like, which they might not do, especially if there's someone in the room that they feel some kind of connection to, right? That is exactly right. And the the role that we play and we do this practice is we actually show people how to show our customers, show our clients how to set up a practice and run it. So our emphasis is on setting up best practice. Mm -hmm. And we actually started doing that because at our core, we're a highly customized training and consulting company. And we had a number of them begin to ask, well, this is great. You've done a great job of showing us how to set one up. Um, we don't have any resources. Will you do this for us? And we decided after the fourth ask, right. maybe we should be offering this capability. Um, and, and back to your point about the loss analysis, it is a gold mine. And in fact, we push our customers to really come into this with the seeking of a balance to try and get as a goal as many losses as wins. And so there's an opportunity then to, to compare and contrast mm -hmm. what our buyers, those who said yes to us, are saying versus those who said no. And sometimes what we, what we learn, there's always gold in here. It's a gold mine for a lot of reasons. What we learn is that the buyer didn't say no to our product or solution or the customer's product or solution. What they said no to is making a change at this particular point in time. Mm which is always a discovery process. It means that the opportunity is potentially still in play. The other thing that it starts to show, even if they said no, no decision, and there's a large percentage of these no's that actually turn out to be no decision, even when that's done, what it gives both sales, customer success, product management, the understanding of what are the resistors, what are the things that are um, large risks that we need to mitigate in order for us to win more business. And many times that process will give us those answers. Absolutely. Let me just a ask you about why people don't do this. You, you talked about resources a little bit, right? So you, you've trained people on it before, and then they've asked you to still help through with it. But what are some reasons that just doesn't come up in, in normal course of business? I think... It's just a function of just having a lot of moving parts. Yeah. And part of the trigger that we've seen comes into will come into play is when a disruptive event starts to occur. So the company is moving along at a steady clip, growing its business, winning some percentage of the deals that they're offered into or the transactions that are before them. And people think that that's okay. This is steady state. We're building our business on this. And then some disruptor comes in. Mm -hmm. Uh, a new competitor shows up and suddenly they lose four opportunities or eight opportunities in a row to that single competitor. And now everybody's radar is up. And so unfortunately, what we find is that it doesn't become a centerpiece of what's going on until something, quote unquote, bad happens. The reason why is because there isn't a lot of data that oftentimes companies will have to assess, okay, our win percent is, pick the number, 40%. How's that compared to our nearest competitor? Right. What could our win percent be if we change certain aspects of our business? So these disrupting events start leadership asking some real pointed, serious questions, which leads to 
the answer is we don't know why we win oftentimes, and we don't know why we lose. And so then this practice, this technique becomes the centerpiece of what goes on. Mm -hmm. So I just think sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. The pain isn't big enough. And I just had this fascinating conversation with a senior leader at a large organization we would all know, and they've been doing well, right? And from a product perspective, he's concerned because they know that they need to be doing more things to stay off competitors in the future. But right now, the organizational perspective is this division is doing great. You know, you guys are rock stars and they can't get support for doing things they haven't done before because the pain isn't there. Right. I think the wisdom is to prepare for the future, which means sooner or later, there's going to be a competitor that makes a difference. Uh, at least get used to the mechanics of gauging a win-loss analysis and include that as part of what you do as, tact as your, your tactics. Chad, I think that's an excellent point. In fact, the pain threshold is the the trigger that creates people to go from nothing to a full-blown program. Mm -hmm. And there are companies that we have seen with foresight that will just start this very incrementally, which yeah. is, again, exercising that organizational muscle. Exactly. So what does it mean to reach out to customers, take the path of least resistance, not a full-blown program? Let's just start doing exit interviews with customer on some mm -hmm. frequent basis. Not casual, formal. Let's make sure that sales is informed of the results and the activity, but not necessarily driving it. Mm -hmm. And then let's triangulate the things that we learn and we hear from sales versus the things we hear from competitors versus the things we learn from competitors and, and versus the things we hear from the customers that said yes and the customers that said no. And, and really, we're talking about something that can be as little effort as making – four or five phone calls a month or four or five emails outbound and making connections like that a month. So everyday innovators, I think we've done a pretty good job up to this point of convincing you of the need for this and maybe adding it to your toolkit if it's not in there already. Mike, let me ask you more specifics than how do we conduct an effective win-loss analysis? Tell us about the pieces involved. So when we get involved with helping um, our clients do this, um, we start with the premise that, and it's usually because there's a pain, that we need to implement a full-blown program. And one of the most important things we stress and we advocate is complete total transparency within the organization. Sales should be told that the program is being started. First of all, I should back up. It needs to be sponsored by an executive. Mm. Ideal executive in a company to sponsor is either the CEO or the VP of sales. And we've done really good work when we've had a VP of sales or a VP of sales operations or a COO step in and say, we are doing this team, and these are the reasons why. Then from there, everything that transfers between our company, our, our consulting firm, and our client, we advocate and push really hard. It's, you must communicate this to all stakeholders, sales, support, our customer success, engineering, on a need-to-know basis, certainly engineering leadership, marketing, everyone needs to understand what's going on and what's happening mm -hmm. and give them progress report. We're back to that idea of exercising that muscle because most of what happens around the win-loss analysis that creates benefit is good communication. And so we build this communication platform based on that and then start to do the work, lining up the list of customers, cut balance between wins and losses, uh, formulating the surveys that need to go and, and provide the mechanism to extract the information. Our particular practice approach is based on we get better responses by putting out online survey requests, which is a very short, very 
specific survey that goes through a survey tool like SurveyMonkey or some of the others out there and having a prospective a respondent, win or loss, customer or not, answer about 10 questions. It takes about two minutes to go through it. And then at the conclusion of that, offering that customer opportunity for follow-up phone call or hmm. follow-up live interview. Um, we've gotten to a point in our world where the general market is survey fatigue. So we're learning and we have learned that you have to incentivize them. So giving small incentives helps drive the response rate up. It can be a difference between a 10% response rate and a 30% response rate. Mm -hmm. um, we suggest that people target a list size of 200 or between 100 at a minimum and 200 and should expect if they do this correctly with the right program announcement, the, the outbound emails and that sort of thing, about a 25 to 30 percent response rate, which is a good baseline to start working from. And then based on that, once the data is collected to start the analysis process calling the pieces together, um, taking the online survey, which is going to be more closed-in questions, more multiple choice, more quantitatively oriented, and balance, balancing it against the things that we learned through the actual interview. We're looking for divergent points and alignment points. Um, when we do that, we compensate for the fact that we've got small sample sizes because we're sharing, here's some statistically significant information. And maybe on the order of confidence, it's only about 75 or 80% confidence level because of the sample size. And it's bolstered by these commentary, this commentary and this anecdotal thread, series of anecdotal threads we've gotten that people will voice and tell us about. Mm -hmm. And so we participate with that and put those things together and share that back to the client. In our case, we always come with some very specific recommendations about things they should go out and do next. And repeat, rinse and repeat on a quarterly basis. The ongoing activity doesn't have to be as large as that initial, first initial push. The ultimate goal is after some period of time, roughly a year, that the company, will, our clients will have, they do have a pool of some 100, 200, 400, 500 data points of which to now compare and contrast sure. movement, shifts back and forth. That's where the information becomes very actionable. That makes sense. Let me ask you about these surveys. So you, you start after you have sponsorship of the program, high-level high sponsorship visibility into this transparency across the organization and you have a list of customers to go after both you know hopefully equalish you know sort of number of wins and losses you start with a survey and then from the survey those that respond you, you ask them for a follow-up so let me ask yes. you about those two pieces the survey what sort of questions are you putting on that survey we poll across several areas they're light touch questions we'll ask did you experience the sales process in a way that gave you an impression that the client understood your business problem. Um, were you mm -hmm. exposed to a list of the following things? Did you see a demo? Were you given a price quote? Were you given a proposal? That sort of thing, sort of an option menu. Did you see these things? So we're, we're doing checks here for sales process. Mm -hmm. We'll ask value proposition questions related to when you made your purchase decision, what was please rank order the following things in order of most importance from product features to customer uh, vendor reputation and price. And so mm -hmm. we ask them to rank order that. Um, we'll ask questions that relate to NPS, um, especially for someone who's purchased, obviously. Yeah. And just Mike, because we have listeners across the spectrum here. So net promoter score is NPS. Yes. It's yes. often yes. thought of as the most important question. Would you refer us to someone else? 
Yes. Okay. And so we ask those kind of questions as well. And then we ask, sometimes we get into value proposition questions. So we will ask of the things that you observed and saw in the product, which one offered the greatest benefit to your organization now that you have started using it. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixture of things that we're looking for. And, and really the, the goal is not to go deep into anything. It's really to do a sampling. It's really mm-hmm. to kind of cover a spectrum and then use this as, an op- as the opportunity if we get to the end of the question for an additional X number of dollars, would you be willing to, to participate in a 15 to 20 minute phone interview right. to follow up? And it's a gift card to them. And they say most, a lot of them generally say yes. And we follow up and we then go into each of those questions in more detail. When you said that you were rated ROI as the most important aspect of your purchase decision, tell us what kinds of things you were evaluating and what kind of things you were doing. It just gives us a chance to get deeper. So the survey, the online survey is really just brushing the surface. Mm -hmm. The follow-up interview is really where we get deep into the understanding. And if we get 50 people to respond to a survey and typically 25 to agree to an online inter- to an actual phone interview. Um, we feel like we've got good mm-hmm. baseline analysis to work from. That's actually a really good pool you know, to pull yes. the insights out of, uh, out of a customer base. So, okay. So we doing the survey that it, we get some information from that, but it's really a good tool to find people to interview, get them kind of involved in the process with us. I mean, you're doing phone-based interviews. If it was feasible, I'm sure face-to-face and person interviews would be valuable there. It has yes. to be feasible, right? And we know what we're targeting for a number of people. I'm curious if – so the, this is the B2B context. We often have multiple roles involved in that buying process. If you try to find multiple people from the same customer, so you know, say we, we lost this big account, you know, they might have had a dozen people involved in that decision on the, on the customer side. Do you try to find multiple people to participate and get their different kind of perspectives? We have done that. It becomes tricky, as you can imagine, yeah. especially depending on the length of time between the purchase and the actual analysis. And we work then with our clients to set up and have them suggest and target those roles that they're actually focused on. And so then we will target them, the outbound, out the outreach in that direction. Yeah. Uh, the mechanics of it can get interesting because sometimes the company will come back and they'll say the, the the customer will come back and say well you've already talked to this person why do you want to talk to us as well and right. sometimes we can explain it no buy in sometimes they say no you've got enough from us we're we're fine yeah. and so instances where we can get multiple inputs from a single a single customer entity they're they're extremely valuable yeah, and this is a real challenge, right? Because yes. it's not like the customers are sitting around going, man, I wish Mike and his group would call me up and ask me questions about that last time. We are time. so enthusiastic <laughs> waiting pa- impatiently for someone to ask us how this process went. No, they've got other things to right. do. Not surprising some of these times where you lose the sale, in these more complicated B2B settings, it has absolutely nothing to do with the product or the people involved. You know, there, I was involved in one organization where we were asked to identify the the best laptop for service calls for a certain, you know, sort of service person. Sure enough, we we did that. And then the sponsor making the decision, you know, said, oh, we're going to pick brand X because my next door neighbor is the salesperson there. Right. None of the analysis made any difference at all. No, it didn't. But I would say broadly that those are exceptions probably that's good in most instances right and so as the goal is is to build out a pool over time 
so that we can normalize those instances that are going to be like that. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at a pool, a, a Responded, an ongoing growing respondent pool that gets to be 100, 200, 500, we can normalize for those anomalies that say the neighbor had a golfing, the customer had a golfing buddy <laughs> right. who happened to be the salesperson from the competitor. Right. Um, we, we then can start to extract from them the insights that are going to work for us most of the time. Yep. I had one situation where I, as a product manager integrated with the sales team, we thought we had lost the opportunity. You know, They, they told us we're picking the the competitor i i just followed up to ask you know why you know why did he decide to go down that path instead and mainly with my product manager hat on right what, what can we do different here in the future and the issue was that that was uh it was more of a a herd mentality it's like well all of the companies like me are going with this other company right that was what he was hearing and it was actually really easy to turn around and we ended up winning the business just because of asking the question and what they were really trying to solve and demonstrating that there were other parts of the their industry that were choosing our solution overwhelmingly. Well, I, I think that's the, the beauty of this. We don't necessarily start out doing win-loss analysis, whether it's being done internally by the, the company that's providing the capability or it's being outsourced to turn deals around or to turn loss situations around. But there are many instances, and, and we've done found this out for our clients, where a significant portion of those losses are actually no decisions. Right. They didn't choose anyone. Yeah, right. And that means that they're still open to the idea of approaching, being approached at some point in time, possibly not now, but in the future. And what the analysis on that particular customer instance oftentimes will reveal is exactly what the vendor must do, our client must do, in order to turn the situation around. To your point about your, your story about getting in and demonstrating that there are companies that are picking your solution versus the other companies. Right. Being able to get those insights are so valuable for product managers and product designers, too. There's this concept of the whole product, which is you know, the, the specific product that we buy is one thing, especially in a B2B context. There's all these other things that go around it that offer value to the organization. You know, we, we may have installation services, configuration services, you know, other pieces. And if we can understand why the customer is making no decision, there's probably a product's offering that we can create there. That actually, that not only we get value from selling to them, but it also helps the customer solve their problem faster. Well, it's funny you say that, Chad, because we recently finished a project with a particular client of ours, and we had a large percentage of the no's, that the losses, that were no decision. And the emphasis, what we took away, the aha moment, and we had a session with the VP of sales and the VP of product management. The aha moment was that in the space that they were operating in, all vendors providing this capability were considered or perceived to be equal in terms of functionality. And the deciding factor was, what is the implementation and life after the purchase look like? Mm-hmm. And we queried the team and said, what do you have? And they had customer experience information about how easy it was to implement, white papers on how to do this work, a series of things that, that sales had not bothered to bring into the situation mm-hmm. simply because they hadn't run into this before. It was a newfound situation. And so we said, guys, we just need to reform and refra- re- reconstruct this all this information about how easy it is to implement and start using that as the feature driver and the, the, the differentiator as opposed right. to stacking up your features because all of the things are equal on a checklist. 
Yeah, that's the thing that stands out that is actually core to their problem now. And having yes. those deeper insights is really valuable, especially to us as product managers. So mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of good things we're talking about here that can be learned through a win-loss analysis. And appreciate you sharing how to go through that, the importance of it also. And I was going to ask you for a case study, and that's, that was a really interesting one you just shared on on the value of doing this. In this case, they didn't really have to enhance the product offering at service. They just had to highlight what they already had. Exactly. That's the that's the beautiful and that's a beautiful insight. No yeah. engineering costs, no development lead time. It's just let's go and re re-architect, or I should say, revise or update our existing collateral. Yep. Excellent. Really straightforward, yes. Um, I have another one that I'd offer as a case study, which is an interesting one. We did one earlier this year with a client that were believing they were under siege to make a price reduction. Hmm. And so we came in and started doing the work, and we did the survey, the online survey work. We did the follow-up interviews. And as we queried, I believe the number of respondents was somewhere around 40 on the online interview and about 20 on the follow-up. Uh, survey, we found that price was at the bottom of the list in almost every purchase decision, whether it was when or not. And our communication into the COO was, do not, do not pull the trigger to reduce pricing in your in your across your portfolio. Mm-hmm. And we're not suggesting that you don't have a pricing a pricing challenge, but what we would suggest is taking another look at it from a different angle. Right. But they were literally ready to push the button and drop pricing. We like that story because it's one of those things that created an avoidance that would have taken profit out of the company. Absolutely. So they were able to maintain wholeness and maintain the results of better pricing and, and rethink how they positioned and how they positioned price as a way of selling. Mm-hmm. And not knowing the industry, the specifics there, it could have actually been even more dangerous because if you know your research said that pricing was at the bottom of the decision criteria for ma- for making a purchasing decision, if indeed you change your pricing position to become the low cost provider, you might be now taking the perception of oh th- those guys are the cheap ones, you know, and you don't even get looked at nearly as often because of that by this group of people who say pricing isn't a big factor. Well, it, it's interesting, interesting to say that because a particular space they're in is one of these professional spaces where people share a lot of information. Mm. And so clearly things spread quickly in those right. kind of segmented sectors where the the customers, our buyers, n- potentially know each other, right. um, interact with each other. There's a high degree of collaboration going on. So I think you're right that the, the danger in that particular instance could have been that it would have, it would have completely repositioned the company as something different than what they wanted. Good. Great information on conducting the win-loss analysis and reasons to do it. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes and uh, always ask for guests to bring one and share why they chose that. What do you have for us? So you asked that question of me and I was intrigued because I'm preoccupied on the threat of innovation today with our notion of failure and failing. Mm -hmm. And I believe that to be the antithesis of innovation. If we are preoccupied with that, we probably will never innovate. So there there are a number of quotes out there about failing and how it can impact innovation. I have some old ones, but I thought I'd offer up one that's more current. It says, failure is an option here. If things are not failing, you are not innovating enough. That comes from Elon Musk. And I think it just speaks volumes about what it is we must be doing in this space to do our jobs well. If we're not trying new things, we're not innovating. 
That's right. This is the fundamental issue of innovation is it means we're doing something new, and that involves learning. Think about anything that we have ever learned in life. We didn't get it right the first time. That's exactly right. So I, I lo- love that quote. Uh, Elon Musk has provided uh, several good ones for us, but I like that reminder that failing is not only an option here, it's really a characteristic of what's involved yes. in innovation. So Yes. Excellent. Mike, thanks for sharing that with us. Tell listeners how we can find out more about the work that you do, the group that you're with, and how we follow up with you if you want to. So the name of the company that we have that I founded oh, about eight years ago, nine years ago, is Egress Solutions. And you can certainly go to our website, which is egresssolutions.net. Um, we are also in the LinkedIn sphere of things. We have a, a group there that's called Product Management 2.0, hmm. um, which is also part of an ongoing blog that we we publish and put things in. And I certainly have a LinkedIn profile. You can find me at Mike Smart. Um, and we are bloggers. We participate in various activities. This is one of the, the ones that we're doing for this quarter with you. We have others that we'll do. And so we, we outreach to people and we encourage people to check us out and come and reach out and ask any questions or any, any queries they have about this area or anything else related to uh, stepping up or improving a product management cr- practice. We're more than willing to engage. And so that's egresssolutions.net. That's right. And I suspect people could contact you through LinkedIn to Product Management 2.0 Group. And then your profile, I think, is just MA Smart on, link, actually, on LinkedIn. I believe it's, I think it's MA Smart. Yeah. I believe it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and I'll put all those good links in the show notes to make it easy for listeners to get to as well. Mike, thanks again for sharing the information on win-loss analysis and the experiences you've had with that are really valuable to us. I appreciate you walking us through some of those specific steps on how we could conduct one of those ourselves if we want to start taking that on and knowing that your group exists to help people that want to outsource this. Chad, thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation and hopefully the listeners are going to benefit from it. Thanks again for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Mike at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 148. Also, don't forget to download the top 10 insights from the first 100 plus interviews. You'll find that at the home for this podcast, which is theeverydayinnovator.com. Thanks again. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.